Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, Janelle, and I are with Katie and Eric and Kelly tonight. Good to have everybody here. Everybody's really excited. Woohoo's. Uh, so we're talking about community community tonight. Katie wrote the content, so I appreciate Katie for that. She'll talk a little bit about that at the start, if that's okay. And just the ground rules, just if you're out there and you don't know what we do or why we do it, it's your first time listening, we do these uh, events every week here in Denver. Other people do them at different times across the country. These guidelines keep us, I think, safe, if you will, in brave spaces. So one, no soapbox is allowed. Nobody gets the last word or viewpoint, but please be passionate Respect all others and their viewpoints. Three, extend courtesy by listening well. And four, everything is up for discussion. Lastly, we say don't be a jerk or whatever word, noun, adjective, adverb you want to put with that. There's lots that we're going to cover tonight. If you just want to know a little bit more about what we do, website, brewtheology.org. We're at Facebook and Instagram at brewtheology and underscore is on Twitter, brew underscore theology on Twitter. That's it. Cool. So Katie, you decided to write about community. You got to tell us why you chose this topic. Give us a little bit of background of where we're headed tonight. And then we're going to just dive in and see where it takes us. Cool, cool. Are we going to read the content after I uh, give not. an let's intro? Not. We won't read it. Okay. So I, I always like to choose topics that are way too big and then try to distill it down into something. Um, and so my thought was, where are we seeing a lot of tension in our culture today? Where are we... Um, seeing a lot of issues or where is stuff kind of breaking down and what kept coming back to me was this big idea of community um, and how communities can be really strong beautiful places of growth and on the other side of the coin they can be harmful they can cast people out they can make you feel unwelcome or even hurt you and so that was kind of where I got the concept for our stuff tonight. Um, we talked about the desert fathers and mothers. Um, it was, you know, originally called the desert fathers. I added the mothers, um, cause there were women as well. That's right. Can't even be alive without a mother. What's that about? Why are they just fathers? So the desert fathers were early monastics. Um, they were early monks who would go out into the desert and spend a ton of time out there. Um, with the concept because of the idea of asceticism, um, like the idea of denying worldly pleasures and in, in search of greater spirituality, greater wholeness, greater enlightenment. Specifically, the Desert, Desert Fathers were within Christianity. There are also monks in other traditions as well. We focused mostly on the Christian monastic traditions in this, these couple weeks that we chatted about these. So then we kind of went into neo-monasticism. Um, you may have heard of Shane Claiborne, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, other monastic communities who really seek to make a space in their community for intentional relationships. Then we kind of went into, into some psychology, which is my background, and talked about groupthink, how people in a group can actually kind of tend toward thinking in a way that can be disastrous just because everybody wants to follow along. Everybody wants to be a part of the group. And if you don't go along with what the group is doing, you might be outcast. So there can be a lot of issues with that. Even, you know, going as far as, you know, the big ones would be like genocide. So we talked about that. And then we chatted a little bit about potential hope. 
um, and how the idea of how religion could even be a cure to groupthink because it provides a framework for evaluating your own beliefs and actions. Um, we talked about that idea and and about communities that had hurt us or helped us grow. All right, let's start with the positive. We're going to get negative and mix it up. So what aspects of, let's just start with the monastic order, that ascetic way of life, denying yourself, denying your pleasures for the sake of your community in the outside world, whether we're talking about, or let's, let's be specific here. Let's talk about communal monasticism as opposed to just one guy out in the wilderness by himself on a mountaintop, because I think that's, that was the direction that this topic was headed from what I understand. So within a monastic tradition, whether you've been a part of one, one person in our group kind of was a part of one in, in their own context in the inner city. Um, what's beneficial? What's attractive to you? What do you like about it? If anything. And then, and then we'll go on from there. Eric and I are in the nope camp. Hey, we're starting with the positives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we start with the traditional monastic communities and we think of maybe ancient and medieval and you know previous centuries where it was uh, you know very organized and small groups living together where there was a dedication to meditation or prayer uh, and then some work. I, I could see some of the positives there from an individual perspective would there be the opportunity for introspection and without a lot of distraction and external inputs and external comparisons um, that I think breed uh, unrest, and then also the the ability for clean living, so to speak, um, for your routine and um, work. So, but it's, it's very isolating. So, I think that if you're fleeing something that is toxic, which we can all say, well, then we should all flee our society today. But if it's that bad, if it's that corrupt, if if, if you're in a system that you can't be a part of anymore. To leave that and to create a new order, um, I think that's that's happened throughout history, and there, there's definitely some attraction in that for sure. I mean, how many times have we all said, "Man, I just want to own to leave our country, I want to go to Canada, or go you know to Europe," and then, and then my question is, and then what? Then what are you going to do? But the idea is, it, it does it does bring about a bit of hope of that we should be having something better locally, specifically because you know we can't really control the national level, but we can control things that are. I think within our reach, speaking of community. So there, there's an attraction there. I want order in my life. I don't want this powerful, whether it's a uh, this king or this you know national whatever, controlling my life. I want to be able to do this autonomously in this agreed upon order, whether that's 100 people or 10 people. You know, it's just, it's more efficient, if you will. For me, I feel like the neo-monastic lifestyle seems really attractive in that it just seems so genuine. The stories I've heard, the you know interviews I've seen with people who are parts of those communities, it it just feels really intentional. Like these are people that are sticking with each other and like there for the long haul. And I guess I've seen a lot of transience with like friendships and even you know just relationships, acquaintances here in Denver, it's really common for people to move in and out. So I guess kind of the idea of consistency and that like long stand, those longstanding relationships really kind of sounds attractive to me. I agree. I, you know, and I, as I was reading that part, um, I totally get the, you know, the, 
the social and economic justice work within a community, finding a community that needs that, some outreach and so forth. Um, it seems very much like the, uh, the lady that came and talked about proximity, right? Uh, she and her family did that. Michelle Warren with the CCDA. Yeah. So they did that in, in their own way. Right. What I guess what I don't get here is why you got to live in the same house. I get I get the the I get the social and the economic justice part and the outreach and helping in the community and stuff. But uh, this is where I'm with Janelle. So, now, so what, what, about, be, what about you? You know, it doesn't have to be a specific house together. You could have your own dorm room and you think of it as like you think of it as a dorm. There's an art, you know. Does that become an ashram or a commune? Remember Are we grown-ups now? We got to graduate from that. <laughs> I know, I'm just trying to think of something that would make more sense. And Yeah, I mean, we had talked last week with somebody specifically that, that lived with a bunch of people and they shared the same room. And, and that gets tiring, for sure. I, I lived with another married couple before, Lauren and I did before we had kids. And that was rough. We did that for one year. We're still good friends with them, but you know, you know, we're trained in the West to, I need my own space. And even even if it's your own spouse or your own kids, you're like, I just need to get out of here or in my, you know, can you guys go in your room right now when I can have some peace and quiet? Perhaps there's some flexibility within this because we're, we're raised in a way where we're very hyper individualized. So this goes against, this is counterintuitive to our culture. So back to the comment you made though, about the, your observation about the transients and kind of, you know, the temporary nature of some of these commitments let me put it that way it would seem to me that hey over here this is your dorm room you know and you get to share it with jim um that would kind of lead to the transients in my mind i mean who's gonna who's gonna sign up for that for a long term great experience as you're growing up maybe college during the summer but i guess it depends on the benefit that the community actually provides you know like what what keeps people coming back? Is it the the combined, the collective mission of social justice, or you know what they're working toward together, that they make those sacrifices? I don't know. I think it kind of depends. Going back to our our society and our culture today, I think we have a very hard time understanding this because when when these de- desert fathers and these desert mothers were around, it would have been normal to actually have your family with you your entire life. In fact, not until recently. I mean, it was very normal to have your parents when they're aging not go into a nursing home. They're in with other you. cultures, it still is right. Yeah. And so I think we're we're struggling with a, a very Western. I don't know if it's a crippling effect in our society. Some would say it's a benefit. Just depends on where you come from. Uh, but let's okay. Let's go back before 21st century, and then we maybe we can try to figure out what that would look like. Um, and did you guys ever? What book was it? Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, and it was, it was in the preface. He talked about community, and there were those Italian immigrants that came in in the 18th or 19th century to Pennsylvania, and they were surrounded by these English and Welsh people, and so they had to 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 thrive and to sustain some sort of a, a culture amongst themselves because they were ostracized as these immigrants, if you will. They were immigrants, and this was a time when. There was no television. There was no internet. You know, there was, I don't even know if there were board games, but probably not. Maybe they came up with something, but they had a very open door policy. And what they found out, research showed that they, they ate like Kings, like, you know, pasta, just bad food. They smoked like chimneys. They were just really, uh, what you would say today, like uh, unhealthy doctors would say, this is not a healthy lifestyle, but they lived longer than people around them. And then they found out the reason why was because of that open door policy, that community that 
every night, you know, you may be cook, cooking in the kitchen and another family is going to smell it and come in. They're going to play games. They were doing holidays together. They actually enjoyed being together. So I, you know, when I found that out, I said, oh, okay. So like drinking beer with friends is better than eating broccoli alone. That's kind of, that's what I came up with after that. <laughs> Uh, but then they found out that it, around um, this same community, these people in somewhere in Pennsylvania, where generations later, uh, the stats went the other way. Heart disease, you know, high blood, blood pressure, diabetes, all those things, because of, of course, the things that they were doing. But they said this was this is when te- uh, television was introduced into society and it closed people off from that that power right. of proximity. Back to what Michelle Warren, you had mentioned what she would say. Because when you put technology, whether it's screen time in your face, then that, we've seen what's happened in our society. So th- there is something to be said about a time before television. We can't do that. Maybe, maybe we can. Some people choose not to have a television. But I mean, what do you, what do y'all think about that? What is when you when you hear something like that? When you know that there's actually studies that show community is like is preventative medicine. Yeah, you know? it's nice. I can I can eat whatever I want, <laughs> live a little bit longer. So I, keep, I think a couple things, somewhat related, but maybe not. On the, the neo-monasticism that you speak about and where people come in and to be a, a community group to, with intention and purpose and that of service, I think one of the things that's very, that I think is very appealing about that and heartwarming about that, because quite honestly, for my generation and being raised, we're very external, externally in, external input, put myself first culture. And so where we're comparing ourselves with everything that's on TV and now it's all the social media things and it's very much materialistic and consumerism. So when groups come together and they're not focused on that, but they're focused on getting back to the community and including people and then doing service work, I think that's very healing on multiple levels for those participating in it and also those receiving it. But to what Eric was saying, and yourself that, oh, am, am I going to sign up to lit, share a room with someone for the rest of my life? Probably not. But we did see, what was that show we saw where it was actually a very large, it was in Denmark, and it was, it was a big building where it had a, like um, a covered internal community area of sorts. And it had all these, um, I don't know if they were, they were like tiny unit apartments, maybe with kitchenettes, but then there was a huge uh, communal kitchen and there was um, a huge community center. And the people who lived in this particular building, there were senior citizens, there were young families, there were single mothers, and but they all uh, shared in so that when the kids got home from school, the people that were home the kids go, would watch them. You, and so the, the parents that were working didn't have to worry about it. And then they had this big communal kitchen where they would cook together and people would take turns. And you could, I mean, if you weren't feeling well or you wanted to have a little bite in your place, you could. But they did a lot of common cooking and a lot of common sharing. And it was a, it was a very thriving community. Do you know anything about the origin of, of that particular community? Do you remember no, was it, it? Was it faith-based? Was it no some kind of... It's a, it, Yeah, it's actually, as I understand it, it was sponsored by uh, the government of Denmark. So whereas we may have, you know, the sen- these senior communities, you know, 55 and older, and everybody gets together and they have that kind of sense of community and stuff, um, the government of Denmark actually will let people use their benefits... Uh, to live in these areas. But in the one lady that they interviewed, she was a single mother of three. And she's like, you know what, without this, you know, I, I couldn't keep a job and so forth. And, and I, you know, back to, you know, kind of what I was saying a little, maybe I'm just trying to split hairs too finely here. 
right? Between community, which I'm very comfortable with, love the idea, and this concept of a monastic life. I just wait. No, we can, let's we can shift over. I mean, I, unless yeah, I unless somebody yeah. has had an experience, maybe it's my yeah. hang up. So but, what's what's the big big differences between the two? I don't know. One, it may, I, I got to wear like a camel hair shirt and you know shave the top of my head. You know, and you can't see your family ever again. I don't know. I just, that, that's just, oh, extreme, like that's, that's the cloud changes. over that word for me. Yeah. There, there, there's that stereotype. Like when people would say, oh, when I, if I'm going to be a missionary, I'm going to, I'm going to live in this country where I'm not going to A, B, and C. So it's, it is like you have this thing in mind about monastic order. So what if we, what if we just. Hey everyone, this is Janelle. And this was our original recording on the community topic that we also did at Wild Goose this year. And in response to a question about what makes healthy community, we kind of dove off the deep end into our experiences that have been not so great. And I've really struggled with whether or not to publish that or to just let that be. I felt like it wasn't very fair to our author who worked really hard to develop great content and help us wrestle with what it means to be in community. So what I'm going to do is I've cut out that part of the dialogue and I'm going to piece together the rest of the conversation for you because I think it's important and we should share it and listen to it. So Dorothy Day says this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. She says that we all have known the long loneliness and we have learned that the only solution is love and that love comes with community. Do you think she's right or is it better to be alone and in solitude? Because one of these questions has to do with solitude. Yeah, I, I would guess... My experience is it's better to be a part of a group. Again, I, I came up in a very large family. My mom was one of 10 kids. Um, I had, there was five of us in our family and just, you know, scores and scores of cousins and, and everything else. And we grew up and we had a sense of being, you know, one part of a big thing, right? That was this family and they had the the get togethers and the weddings and the, all of that kind of stuff. And as I grew up and, you know, got married and had kids, we only had two kids in the very transient life that we had because of the corporate culture and so forth that we uh, lived in, we moved all over the place. So I, I did see my kids grow up without that. And now I'm seeing my grandchildren grow up without that being that sense of being part of, you know, family in that, in that definition, family being the, the community. Um, it's messy, you know, it's ugly. You know, you always have that one uncle, you know, and that stuff, but, um, no, I think it's, I think it's definitely. Yeah, and you had mentioned that you, the, the warts, the hairs and all that, you stick with the hairy uncle, you know, you, he's your uncle. It's your brother, your sister, your cousin, whomever, like, you're still going to do Thanksgiving and Christmas with them. Why don't we choose to do that outside of our, of our blood or, or adopted blood? You know, like, I guess what I'm, yeah. Agree, agree. Because we have a tendency to be very cloistered. Yeah. Right. I mean, if we know that we can do it in these really uh, hairy situations, I'm going to keep, keep going back to hair, hairy. <laughs> then, then, yeah, why can't we do it in these other communal institutions? I think it's scary. I mean, in, in family, there are these inherent times of vulnerability, 
you know, somebody's in the hospital and you're doing things to help them. You're, you know, going back to their house. You're maybe helping change bandages, you know, like family, you know, kids need their butts wiped. Like it's families have these vulnerable moments and, and experiences kind of built in, I think. But they're known quantities. Eh, I don't think so. And I feel like, I feel like that vulnerability is hard to contrive. It's hard to intentionally, you know, it takes one person stepping out and being vulnerable and then seeing what happens in the community. You know, if you're not family with these people, there's a lot of risk, you know, if you're in stepping out and being vulnerable and and showing kind of something really personal about you or being really honest about something that has hurt you. And, you know, you risk kind of losing that community potentially and i i think that could contribute to you know the difficulty in you know community also just in individual friendships with adults i think that can be hard too you're saying like in our transient world because i see two sides of that because sometimes i think um I think sometimes for many people, when someone shows their vulnerable side, we open up and we're warm to it and we appreciate that and we, we, um, we have some tenderness about it. And then there's other groups that I know where it's, and, and to me it's a much more superficial group, where you know everyone's got to be smart and sharp and polished and the most successful. I mean, that, that, that's a completely different idea of community. So when we say, do we open up our houses? Because I came from a big family as well, raised with a lot of cousins and all that kind of stuff, and it was really cool. And now in our world is very transient. It's very transitional. And, you know, there's times we've talked about it. It's like, let, how do we open our house up and invite more people in? And so is it afraid that we're going to be vulnerable or is it afraid that we're going to take on the responsibility of other vulnerable people? And that's, that's yeah, a selfish thing to say. But I mean, that's that's kind of <laughs> so. Um, yeah, well, I don't. I don't think it's selfish because, especially in church settings, and if you're called to ministry, getting the vulnerable people thrown on you is a lot of the times what happens, and so it makes you skeptical, and it makes you doubtful. Because there's always some some job to be done. There's always some thing to be produced or fixed. And so being allowed to just be in community and not have to be holding it all together and holding it all up is really different. And you can do a lot of that when you're 20, but you don't have energy for it later. And so then it, it becomes this thing of like choosing where am I going to have community and how, what is that going to be? And is that actually going to be life-giving? And I don't think it's selfish to ask that question at all. Maybe the problem is, is it in these situations where, for instance, in the church, let's just, we, we keep going back to that because that's the experience that we've had. And there is the, this really vulnerable person whom everybody knows is, uh, let's just say a little off, you know, and in, in whatever, whatever, you know, you can come up with your own sort of situation in your head, what that looks like. And it's usually going to be one or two families, maybe two, that deals with, with those people. Whereas I feel like the church as a whole should be about a they. It should be corporate because it is mm -hmm. an, an assembly that's more than just one or two people. So let's say somebody who just takes a lot of work. It's not just on, you know, it's not just on you or that person. It's, it's, on, it's, on, it's on everybody else, you know, 
Because otherwise, like you're gonna burn out. I don't, I don't care if you're gifted in mental health and you're the best counselor in the world. You, you can't do that all the time. You, you actually, you need to fill your tank. You know what I mean? Whereas, but in the, in the church world, typically though, it gets in the laps of just a couple of people. So how how do we get back to a not even in the church world, a, but in the world? Yeah. So it's more of a, and I like the idea of this is where the the idea of covenant theology and the, the this is Old Testament stuff. Uh, not just Cal- Calvin, you know, he took it later, but I'm talking like really the people of Israel. It was always a they, it was always an hour. In fact, all the stuff in scripture that we've made, we personalized. I think, I think that has bastardized this, this faith of Jesus and this God of, of Jesus as well. Uh, Cause it, if it's communal and it's community doing it, then it's not individualized. And if it, cause if, when it becomes individualized again, this is where toxicity creeps in. It's easy for everybody to get burned out. Or the, the good the good people who are doing the hard work they're, they they left the church now so then what so the question is how how does how does the whole actually say yes you do that when you go to weddings you say okay we're all agreeing together we're gonna help this marriage well that's that's usually bullshit we just say it because it's the thing that we do you know yes we do we we when when families go up in churches and they do whether it's a baptism or a dedication in other traditions oh everybody make sure you say we do oh we do it's the right it's a nice thing to do but we don't. There's the issue, I think. I think part of it is the size of the communities that we see now. I mean, the size of churches right now. Huge. The $10,000, the 10,000 people arenas, right? Yeah. You know, you really get lost in that. Because if you have 10,000 people or you have 50 people, like these things don't necessarily work very well. Because you need enough of a quantity of people to kind of spread it around. People don't like to take ownership. What is that about? Is that a new thing? I'm just kind of curious. In your lifetime, has, has anybody seen a drop off on just ownership as a as a whole? Well, I mean, I just read this article. I don't know where it was, but uh, it was about you know dealing with smaller congregations. And basically, she's it was a pastor reflecting on the fact that my people are exhausted, and because they they're they're having to work three jobs to pay the bills and provide child care and do the thing and then you want them to show up for a board meeting and then you want them to give to a fundraiser like they don't have it they don't have it and I think that there is there is something to that I think in a lot of our churches maybe no matter what size like there's this I can show up on Sunday and that's what I got because I'm just trying to survive the rest of the time and I think there could be some truth in that to fix that, oh, yeah. you need covenant and you need community and you need to provide for each other. But how do you do that when nobody has time to show up? So then is the old model of church, is it just, it's outdated? If we're talking about community, it doesn't really exist. Because of society today, it's so busy. It is so busy. And everybody's working their asses off trying to, like you were saying, do all the things. And then you're like, then you want to go to a board meeting? Like, that is ridiculous. You know, I mean, now that I'm out of the system, it is ridiculous to have that ask. Unless you have a lot of free time. I think it really is connected to consumerism, you know, like that consumer mentality of I'm going to go to this community, take something from it once a week and then continue on with my life. You know, when there's when there's a sense that you you pay for a service, then, you know, that's that's where it breaks down for me. People do. They pay for a show every Sunday, except most of them don't pay. Except most of them don't. Only, what, 10% of people play their tithe? 20% of the people do all the work? Apparently 10% is good enough for a G6. 
It might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, whether so you had mentioned that. I mean, let's go back to that. Whether it's 10,000 or 100, I forgot what the number was. So 50. 50, okay. Uh, is, it, is it really doable today based on all the demands to create that, that real, what we would say, fellowship? You know, that actually matters, that people give a damn. Or do you have to be retired in order, you know? <laughs> do your kids have to be out of the house? Is that, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Is it because people who are commuting and, I mean, not not to mention, I mean, there's so many issues and, and things going on. I, I always go back to our friend Ed, right? Oh, uh, yeah. That says, you know, the, the worst thing that ever happened to the modern church was the car, the invention of the car. Because once upon a time, you went to the church that was down the road, right? Right. And Heron Warts and whatever that went with it, yeah. that was the church. That was your extended community. That was your extended family. You took care of the people that were sick, and they took care of you if you needed to. Once the car came about, his, his, his opinion or the, what he said was, um, now you could go shopping and find that one, right? And you could. I mean, if you travel out to Aurora or to some of these other communities and stuff, you can take from that service once a week and then just go clear back to your neighborhood and you never have to interact. I would even argue that the, the larger churches, and I don't want to get into a larger or smaller, that's not the point. The point is that the mega churches, probably most people don't live anywhere close to them. I mean, in 15 to 30 minutes, people are commuting to go to these larger churches. Some 45 minutes. I mean, in, Every church I've gone to in Denver, it's probably got a 45-minute radius, if not larger. And that's on a Sunday when there's no traffic. Right. It's Maybe this is an urban problem here. I don't know. Maybe that's adding to it. Yeah, I wonder if that is an urban problem. Because I know um, when I was young, my family was Catholic, and Catholics are very parish-oriented. And parish are very local community-oriented. So that is one of the things that I grew up thinking that the church was. It was your neighbor in your neighborhood. And I remember being um, young, younger, and my mother was very involved in the parish. And we did a lot of events in, at the church. And we every party my parents ever had, the local priest was invited and came. And so I didn't have that sense of church shopping. or And it was, it was very local. But I, I, think, that, I think that's very real. That and somebody had told me a few years ago, it was another pastor, he had said, the, the, the one thing that has saved the Catholic Church for all these years is the local parish for exactly the, the same reason that we're talking about. I guess I, I feel like I want to go a little bit deeper into like that motivation piece of why people are part of communities. Maybe it's location, maybe it's proximity, but what other factors kind of are, are involved in, in good communities that are cohesive? Where do we see that and what, I don't know what I'm asking, what kind of people, what personality traits, what kind of common causes bring about these type of, types of intentional communities, religious or not? Okay, well, this might be a little bit messy. The, I think that there is an inherent part of us that need to belong. And so that community can be a lot of different things and and it can be very dangerous. I mean, it can be gangs in South central LA. Um, and I, I think that there, there's an element in humans 
that do want to belong. And so we, we look for a community. And, and it's so interesting, we have all this technology to bring us together, but we're, we're still very alone. And I think that people yearn for some sense of community, but we're, we're disenfranchised. And so people are, I think people are looking for a community and we find it in different ways. We find it in the yacht club or we find it on the golf course or we find it in a church or we find it in um, less healthier avenues as well. Within religion, you look for common teaching, common practices, certain prayers, meditations, if you will, social justice, common, you know, common good causes, whether it's Habitat for Humanity or it's gardening or it's helping the homeless. I think that's actually probably the most attractive today, whether we're talking about millennials or people who are baby boomers who have been awakened to like, oh, the homeless. And this has happened to so many baby boomers who are, you know, they they're like have this awakening of probably because of the millennials, which I'm like, we always like to ride the millennials. Sorry, Katie, I know you're a millennial, but let's high five and praise and yeah because they're they're cause driven you know and so you're seeing communities now awaken to these whether it is helping the homeless or getting just getting together on a saturday picking up you know litter no, in the and park. i agree and like let, let's go dig wells in africa there's a Absolutely. lot and all the causal in uh, businesses that have been established yeah more than anything else i think as somebody who spent 12 plus years working with teenagers missional mission trips missional living all the all the anytime you would get students and potentially parents. That was, that was always the key for me. If I can get mom and dad intrigued on what old Johnny's in, interested in the best things we ever did, because that created community. And there was, there's a power in, in you're saying people coming together and going and digging a well or, you know, getting on the roof of a house and stubbing their finger with a nail, you know, a hammer and a nail. That was me, not the kids. I was really bad with a hammer and a nail. They would, the high school boys would laugh at me like, Ryan, you're not really handy. And my, my wife still says, Ryan, you're not very handy. But it was fun. It brought us together. I think you're, yeah, like bringing up another piece of it is common experience and events that have happened to your community can bring people together too. One of the best communities I've been a part of recently has not been religious. It's been a yoga class where we joke. There's eight of us in the class eight to 10 of us and we joke around and giggle during the poses and then go out for drinks afterwards and help each other move and hang out on the weekends. And it's, yeah, it's healing, you know, and, and very light and, and, and we have a common goal of being more flexible. (laughs) Yeah. I had a friend tell me she joined a uh, fitness group and that, has become her life as she started kind of letting go of the church and living community with those people um, because they're all trying to improve their bodies and work towards a certain thing and, and that that made a huge difference. And I think I think that's an interesting piece that sometimes taking God out of it opens the door to community in a different way. And I don't, I don't know how to explain that. Um, Maybe it's just there's a lot of tapes and old messages that we have about what religious community should look like. And so if we can find some community outside of that, let those two things not coexist. I don't know. I think therein lies a a huge problem within Western Christianity is that, and you had mentioned taking God out of it, whereas God's always been in it. And we're the ones who've created that that gap between secular and sacred. It's all sacred. 
the secular, if you will, I hate using that word, is actually sacred. I, th- I think God is in all things. It's that awakening of that Jacob has in you know, that scripture where he's like, oh, God is in this place and I wasn't aware of it. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great passage where here's a guy trying to find himself. He wakes up in the middle of the night the next morning. He's like, shit, this whole time God's been here? And, uh, and he creates this monument. But I mean, how, how often do we, we, we go to God, for God in church? We go for God in Bible studies and prayer. A lot of Christians, and they leave the church altogether, and they find God in yoga class. Well, guess what? God's always been in the yoga class. I mean, I think so. You might call it something else. Yeah. But it has a different word for God. It's just that we've limited God. We've limited the, as, as actually Richard Rohr would say, that the Christ, right? The Christ yeah. has been with us since before the beginning. I actually feel like as we've continued to do this work in interfaith that I find so much more community between religions than just in a specific one. And that's been so, it's just been fun to be a part of and a fun to watch and just to realize that like there's this shared thing that we all care about, like what we believe, but we're coming to the table to find our similarities and that in that, there is a beauty and a resonance of spirit and a resonance of presence that, honestly, I haven't felt in a church in a long time. And that's been really encouraging. Because there's flexibility going to back to what Katie said. Yeah. Maybe we should do yoga before we drink beer. Is that what you're saying? Next time I could lead us through a few sun salutations. Um, I... I don't know if this is related to anything, but what keeps coming up as we kind of talk about these themes is like cross across cultures. I feel like a community is a, is a microcosm of culture and the times that I've spent in other cultures has, it's always been really, really clear to me how much we are the same as opposed to how different we are. You know, there's going to be different looking toilets or different types of food. But at the end of the day, you know, like we're going to laugh on the tram when this guy drops his hot dog. Like it's, there are so many more commonalities than there are differences. And I think that's related to what we're talking about. Well, yeah, because what it makes me think of is just um, kind of two aspects of something. One that I came from a very missional church so we read missionary books growing up and learned about all these countries and the way that people weren't like us and how we had to go and take what we knew to them which I now have a whole bunch of other words for um that are not that makes this whole process make me not happy inside but so like we were always othering other cultures and then in, we do the same thing with evangelism in the decades that I was you know teenager into college it was all about like othering and how can I get them to come to me or how can I go there and upset their understanding and bring them to me and bring them to Jesus because that's the only way like there wasn't a sense of trying to find harmony or I mean I, I have I mean I have books on apologetics at home that say warning if you read about this religion it could be dangerous like that's not helpful at all. And so I think that maybe maybe we're seeing the fruits of a church that has spent the last couple of decades othering everybody. Even even uh what Rick Warren's purpose driven church or whatever, you know, make a friend and hang out with that friend and then, you know, as you become friends and they trust you, then you can slip Jesus in there. 
that's not what friends do. And I wonder if you if you're right with the, the bait, and, <laughs> bait and switch is a way to go to make friends. The neo monasticism, what you're talking about, is that it's that people that maybe were raised with some of these uh, what I would call hardcore, um, severe mindsets, and then they get to a point where. The, it, it doesn't pass the smell test anymore or whatever reason it goes off tilter. And so they're open to focusing on the good things that they learn, primarily the teachings of Christ. I mean, that's the only thing that ever made sense to me. Um, and w- actually try to live that in the community. This is so complicated. Not for children, because Caroline, when, by the time she was old enough to understand other people and that it's fun to actually have people around her, outside of mom and dad, we would go to the park religiously, talk about a religion. Oh man, with her, we were there all the time. And we would, we would show up. She was about three. There's no Stella. She's like, where are my friends, dad? Where are my friends? You know? Um, but then another kid would show up and then what would happen? She'd make friends with that person. I mean, and we're so, we're like that too. We're like, oh man, where's, okay, looking around the party. Where's, oh, there's Eric. Okay, cool. Rob's here too. All right, great. Uh, but what would it be like? Like, okay, they're not here. Oh, but here's Bob. I've never met Bob. Bob looks like he, uh, he could be fun. I don't know. He's wearing a plaid shirt. He's wearing a Rockies baseball cap. He doesn't like Coors Light. Bingo. We're going to be buddies. No, <laughs> but, but we don't think that way. You know, we're like, we're, we're stuck in these ruts and children can make friends wherever they go. So, I mean, she, Caroline did that when she was a toddler. She still does that. I mean, she'll still ask for her buddies, but if they're not around, she's looking for a kid. So awesome. We've lost that art of being childlike. Can we foster that? Is that what we should do? Yeah, I think it is. But you have to be willing to let everybody in just the way they are. And when we, we talk about opening, I'm sorry, when we talk about opening up community, I think of my father, and he was a very open, he was not a religious person at all. He only went to Mass on Christmas and Easter, and that was it. Um, but he was a very open-hearted person. And he used to bring home strays all the time. And my mom would groan, but he was just, he never met a stranger. And and I, I think that he actually had the spirit. He lived the spirit. And he, was, there wasn't, he wasn't intimidated, intimidated by somebody who may have been higher up on the socioeconomic ladder, and he wasn't better than somebody who was lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And I don't know how he had that spirit, but he did. He just had this kind face and an open heart. And what happens to us that we become fearful for that? I mean, I think we get hurt. You know, kids are, kids are pretty sheltered. I mean, terrible when they're not. But, yeah, I think kids haven't been hurt in the same way that we have as adults and we remember our experiences and, and are hesitant the next time we're trying to make a friend at a party. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So this is going to sound z- zealous because it is. So for, for years now, I've had this experience. Lauren and I have lived in a lot of different places and they've all been great and life-giving and complicated too. And here's a question that I will ask myself. And I'll, this will come to me when I'm even mowing the grass and I look around going, and you look across the way, and you're like, oh, I haven't seen that person in a while. The question that I ask myself is, are you willing to die to these people? Okay. That's, um, and regardless if you have, I know that's a strong one. It's zealous, right? It's, it's, 
it's a very, it's a very sort of, and I'm not, I'm, by the way, I'm not a military warrior, braveheart kind of guy. Like that's not, even when, when men would talk about those analogies in church, I would kind of cringe, but there is, there is that sense of uh, willing to die to this community and that's putting your life on the line, um, in your vulnerabilities. And it is, it is going the extra mile, regardless if you're going to be there a few months or a few years or a few decades. And I, I think I have to ask myself that question because usually the answer is, intuitively in our culture is, hell no, I, I want to preserve thine own self. I don't want them to really know who I am because eventually, you know, I mean, people are going to get sick of me and I'm going to get sick of them. But I think that's an important question. And I, and I actually recently have been asking myself that again, Re- regardless of what happens with them or with me or with anybody around us, like that, that's key to, I, th- I think, cultivating community. Again, very zealous sounding. I think as long as that question's coming out of a healthy place, and isn't being imposed by someone on the outside. Because like some of that covenant language, yes, it can be very positive. It can also be very bondage making. And are you willing to die for this community? Well, do I have to do that right now? Yes, that's what it means. If you want to join, you better be willing to die for this thing. Like that's not healthy. That's abuse. So I'm keeping it light because I, cause I, cause I put on the heavy language. But it's... I'm I'm totally with you. I agree with you 110. I just think it has to be it has to come from a healthy place. Uh, yeah. for, would I die for brew theology? Absolutely. Um, would I die for some of the churches I've been to? If you if I got to ask that question now, nope. So we will get spat upon, hurt, and you know, Katie, you were just talking about kids have not had that experience. We will. It's just going to happen over time. We're all going to irritate each other. After a few years of, of actually getting to know people in any context, there's going to be irritations. Yeah? If someone is abusing you, that is a different story. It's different. So I'm not talking... I, I, I think, think I think that, that line, uh, though, I think, though, from where some of us come from, that line has always been super blurry. And to even use the word abuse has been like, they'd laugh you out of the room. Oh, that's That doesn't apply here. Well, yeah, actually, it does apply here. So... That's just, that's a skepticism that's developed out of, for a long part of my journey, that a lot of what was going on was actually abuse. And I didn't have words for it. I didn't know how to name it. And so I guess I may be a little hyper aware of that at this stage of life because I don't want to hurt people and I don't want to watch people being hurt. And I almost think maybe that's, that's part of my call now is to be aware And that's not to, I mean, there are things worth dying for. There are people that I would go a million miles with, but that needs to be my choice and it needs to be from an informed place and it needs to be in a healthy space. And I don't think it's wrong to put conditions on that where what I was taught was, well, there are no conditions on Jesus. I mean, if he calls you to go to Africa, you're going to go right. No matter what. So let me, let me, let me, let me play devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, I'll agree with, with what you're saying. And I think that self-preservation is healthy. I think having boundaries is a good thing. So what do we do with the suffering servant image? And I'm just getting down to the roots of, of the Christian tradition. Cause that's, that's what we speak from. And, and Jesus even tells his own disciples like, Oh, I'm going to go through this, but you're going to go through it too. And what does that say to people of faith that their tradition actually is about an oppressed people who are persecuted. Now, granted, I'm, okay, I'm not saying that American Christians are persecuted. They're no, not. they're not. Now, there's scenarios where you can be persecuted and abused, right, in un- unhealthy situations. Um, but, but what, yeah. 
how do we, how do we then, if, if that's the faith that, I've, you know, that we claim, I'm not speaking for all of us around the circle right now, but if, if that is it and, and the rootedness of that tradition isn't a suffering servant Messiah, what do you do with that in the context of community and the other? Cause there is going to be the other as well. I think one, one piece of that is, um, are you enabling bad behavior or bad systems or bad patterns? And if the answer to that is yes, then I think that it's okay to step out of that servant space and say, this isn't right. We need to fix this. Um, you know, I'm totally willing to say for all the world to hear that I, I might not be the best suffering servant anymore. But I also don't think that God would call me into that space right now because he knows what that would do to my physical health, what that would do to my own mental health. And so there are people that can do that work their entire lives and they thrive in it. And if they do that, that's great. And Jesus had divine power to do that. But I don't think he expects all of us to do that all of the time. And we all have to listen to where we're being led. And and my being a servant may look very different than what your being a servant might look like. And I don't think it's wrong to ask those questions. Um, and I think the, the other reality on that, yes, that's, a, I mean, I love the kenosis passage in Philippians. It's beautiful and amazing that God would empty himself of his divinity to do what he did. Um, and so I don't know how to reconcile that. It's a paradox that I can't really answer anymore. But when I, when I hear the call, I'm going to respond and do what I can do. And I think maybe that's one of the weighing mechanisms that I think is important. We don't have full divine energy and power all the time in however we want to like draw the picture of what Jesus was like when he was here. Um, and so, you know, how do I do this in a way that's going to be beneficial for, for the person that I'm trying to help or the system that I'm trying to reform? Like, it's okay to ask that question. What is going to be healthy here? But I also don't have to use up all of my energy on, on issues, people, things that are just going to suck me dry and leave me empty. That's not fair to my husband. It's not fair to brew theology. It's not fair to my family. And I don't feel like God's going to call me. I mean, I don't feel like he's asking me to do that. I just, and I feel so all of that to say, I think a lot of the people that maybe we talk to and listen to us, there were no boundaries on that. Well, you need to be a suffering servant no matter what. And there were no boundaries on that. It is okay to put boundaries on that. And if God doesn't understand at the end of this, I'll bring the beer and we'll be in hell. And that's fine. If my God can't understand that. You better have some hoppy beer. I know how you feel about IPAs. I'm drinking one. Hey, Thank we you go. very much. Is. So Janelle right now is suffering. She's drinking an IPA. It's actually pretty good. Oh, it's, that's on the record for all to hear. Yeah, it's interesting. So to, to kind of go back real quick before Ryan complicated everything with that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. My my daughter, my twenty five year old daughter is actually dealing with um, a very similar situation. So she lives on a, a military base up in the northwest. Um, she's got a two year old son and a husband that's deployed, right? And so she's home alone. 
hold down the fort. Well, she's got their own military housing, uh, and there's a lot of other young ladies uh, in the neighborhood and so forth that have young children and stuff too. So all of a sudden, there's like this built-in community, right? Uh, they're all dealing with the same thing. Their husbands are in the same situation. They all have young kids. There's actually a green space between them so that the kids can play in and all this kind of stuff. But wherever there's community, conflict arises, right? And we actually, in fact, had the conversation with her just two days ago or something like that. And she had the same question that you put out earlier. She's like, we're going to get orders. We're going to move. I'm never going to talk to these people again. Why do I bother? You know, because she's bitchy. She's complaining. She bothers me. I don't. Her kids are dirty. They're nasty. Whatever. You know. Why do I get involved? Why do I care? You know, because I'm not going to be here in two years. I'm not going to be here in maybe in six months or whatever. Um, and I, and I, I, I don't think that's unique to her. I don't think it's unique to any of us. I think that's a, a question we face all the time, whether it's in a church community, sit in the back pew, don't talk to anybody, run out before they pass the, you know. Uh, and so forth. I mean, how far do you invest yourself? And quite honestly, Janelle, and we did have this conversation with her as well, related to one of the young ladies that's in a part of that community. And you know what? Sometimes resolution is to quit. Just stop. Yep. Just say, you know what? You're unhealthy. And I can't do it. Go with God. I wish you the best. But you're not pulling me and my family down. Right. And and not that that's your intent, but that's the result that's that the you're result. having on me. Yep. Okay. Yep. And maybe it's all me. Maybe it's my problem. And I just don't know how to deal with you. Um, but that's the result. So I'm done. And I, I think like that right there is the piece that I think is so important because no one ever said to me, it's okay to call it it's okay to say enough. Like that was never an option in following the Jesus that I was given. It's you never have the right to say, Nope, that's enough. So if you're out there listening and you're in deconstruction and you're forcing yourself to go to church, you have permission to stop. If you are struggling to figure out what God wants next and are exhausted from the fight, just stop. You do not have to keep going. You can take a break. It is okay. Let's say, remember, it's not Jesus asking you to do it. It is a human being. It is a person asking you to do it who's operating in their own space, social, political agenda context. Yeah. Katie, I feel bad because I feel like we've, I mean, we've just taken this down the negative road and that wasn't an intention. I just think, I think there's, that it's so complicated in, in the church setting right now that it, I think some people need to hear like a break from community is okay. I think a lot of, I, I think a lot of people have that same experience. Like I think what we're talking about is going to resonate with a lot of people. And I think it's important to have this conversation too. Like, I think that the rules that we have here at Brew Theology are actually a huge part of what makes good community. And so as, as you go out to find community and even find people, are you with someone that's always soapboxing? 
maybe that's not the best option. Are, are you hanging out with people who always want the last word? Maybe that's not the best option right now. Are the people you're with respecting you? And do you respect them? And do, do they listen well? And do you listen well? And are there topics that are off the table because you can't handle it? What are those topics? How does that affect you? I think one thing we could all say, I think, around the table is we exist. Those of us that want to follow these rules, we exist. We're out here. There's a lot of us in Denver. There's a lot of them where you are. You will, you can find them. Keep looking. They're out there. Yeah, and I, I would like to add that the, uh, the reality of that forsaken feeling and that experience that people do have, like, I feel like God's forsaken me. My community has forsaken me. Maybe my my family, my closest friends have. Um, I I do. I would encourage people, like you were saying. I mean, to to take a break from whatever it is creating that forsakenness, obviously, but then to persevere at some point to find that that tangible hope. And I I know that's that is where this this actual content has ended and you talked about the two hope for religious communities or how about non-religious communities as well? Sacred, secular, it's all, it's all in there. Right. Um, I I think we have, I would hate for anybody to fully give up in, in that abysmal state of, of forsakenness, you know, and how about this realizing that you're like, you know, you say these words a lot. You say you're not alone. Um, And it's true. I mean, how, how often when we have that, forsaken um what was me that we it is about just just us and our own experience like well it's it's a bunch of other people too what if we did share in that shit together yeah and then you go out and don't do anything too crazy together if you're sharing that shit together but you know like you have you have a you have some fun together too you know you, you balance that back and forth because uh, eventually people do people will heal the scars will i mean obviously always be there but you you can heal together if you share in those sufferings together that's what i mean Shit, Paul talks about this, doesn't he? You know, you 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 suffer with those who suffer. You rejoice with those who rejoice. This is all in the Bible. Damn it, this is nothing new. I'm just adding some language there, but it's just it's there. It's always yeah. been there. <laughs> we just gotta believe in ourselves and believe in each other. That even in our in our shittiness, there's good. Well, I want to give a shout out to Shane Claiborne. And uh, this gentleman that Katie exposed us to, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, um, because I, I know that we've gone down some holes where we think communities have have had um, some negative impacts and some controlling natures um, that have been overwhelming. But I think that these groups are demonstrating the ability for individuals to take control of our intention. And how if we want to live mindfully and purposefully. So if we choose to join a neo-monastic community or not, I mean, some of these can be just larger groups in general in the population um, that, uh, you know, I fully support those directions where we're, they're living closer to the true teachings of Christ and uh, being uh, of service and uh, focusing on what's important, which is serving um our fellow human beings and being uh, social advocates and social justice advocates uh, in the community and, and serving those that are on the fringe society that our country uh, and our, probably our world needs that 
you know, more than ever. And we can find groups to do that with, whether they're Jesus bound or they're something else. Um, there are lots of communities and opportunities out there to do really good work together and share in that and grow together and find those friends. I mean, that one of the ways that you find community outside of church, in case you didn't know this, my husband and I talk about this because we were, you know, so deeply rooted in evangelicalism until we were in, in our late thirties and we did not know how to have fun and you can go do other stuff and make friends and make community. It's okay. And that doesn't, it's not any less than there's no measurement there. You can have a great yoga community. You can have a great soccer team community. You can have a great brew theology community. And those all count as great community, even if they don't have Jesus in the name. It's okay. Anything we missed, Katie, that you want to add? Oh, I think we covered it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this could go in so, so, so many different directions. Yeah, maybe this is the start of a conversation. Yeah. And it can continue. Absolutely. All right. Well, who are you going to meet tomorrow? That's the question. So hopefully today did not get you completely down. And tomorrow you're going to meet somebody new or not. Maybe it's the same person, but it's a new conversation. So if your community is for two months, two years or 20 years, we should put our best heartful self forward. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, make sure you share it. And we're at Brew Theology, also on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, anywhere else, Pocket Cast. All the things. There it is. Yeah. So share it on the line. It's a good thing. And if you want to create your own Brew Theology community, you can just email us. Yep. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So, cheers. 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 Thank you.